Reminder, we have our picnic. That means we need some volunteers. I think it's a go this year. It looks like a 10% chance of rain on Saturday the 19th. So that means that the 10% of the area that will get rain will be in Patterson, right? <laughs> Just that one little area. No, it looks good, so we're going to need volunteers. We need, uh, we need grills. We need people to man the grills. We need cooks. We need others, and it's going to be fun. There's going to be lots of activities for the kids. So uh, make sure you sign up out in the uh, fellowship hall and also sign up for to receive the church emails if you haven't done that. Well, isn't this exciting? Astros are up four to one. It's the bottom of the fourth. So we'll just have to wait and see. Now, I remember when I was in the sixth grade, and that was in the era of transistor radios. And they played the World Series during the day, and we were not allowed to listen because we had, of course, we were in school. But little boys are very inventive, and we would take our little earplugs and we would run them, have our radio in our pocket, run the earplugs up under our shirt, coming out right behind our ear and trying to camouflage, sitting there at the desk paying attention. So I know most of you have your cell phones open so you can follow the score. So we'll take a couple of breaks tonight here and there just for a score update to see how things are going. I think God will understand. Yeah. So <laughs> trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we can be in right relationship with the Lord, enjoying our fellowship, moving forward spiritually. And when we sin, we no longer are doing that, so we need to recover through confession of sin to make sure we are in right relationship with the Lord. So we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, we're thankful that we have your word, that it is sufficient. You have revealed to us all that we need in order to surmount any and every situation that we face in life. And in thinking in terms of categories, there's no testing, no temptation that we enter into today that was not present a thousand years ago or two thousand years ago or three thousand years ago. 
And in every situation, you have provided that which sustains believers and enables them to live in dependence upon you, trusting in you, relying upon you, demonstrating that trusting you is the only way to live life where we can experience genuine joy, happiness, and stability. Father, it's the only way we have meaning in life and can understand why things happen the way they do that may not be pleasant, and that we can relax and uh, enjoy even the suffering, the difficulty, the heartaches that we face. And so as we continue, wrap up tonight, hopefully, our study on sufficiency and moving on in Second Peter, we pray that you'd help us to understand these things by looking at the New Testament patterns for sufficiency. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Go Astros. Let's pray for the Astros that they'll win tonight, Lord. We need to do that. He cares about that because he cares for us and we care about that. That's right. That's right. We used to we used to be able to say that the Dallas Cowboys were his team. That's why there was a hole in the ceiling so he could watch his team play. But now they've got a new stadium, so it doesn't apply. All right, open your Bibles with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. We are in 2 Peter. That's not where we'll spend most of the night, but I want to remind you of where we are. We're talking about the sufficiency of God's grace because his grace provides his power. And again and again, since I've been teaching this the last several weeks, I have noted more and more as I have read through the Psalms and read through different New Testament uh, passages and promises, the emphasis on the availability of God's omnipotence to us to handle situations in life. God's power is readily available for us, and so often we just don't think about it that way. And the pattern, as we've seen in our study on Sunday morning in Ephesians chapter 1, is the power that God demonstrated in raising Jesus from the dead, the ascension and his current session in heaven above all the all the powers of the angels even, that, that Jesus Christ is now seated at the helm of the universe. So last week we looked at Old Testament examples of God's sufficiency, and tonight New Testament examples of God's sufficiency. 2 Peter 1.3 says, Since... His divine power, that's his omnipotence, has given to us. Past tense, it has been given to us. It is ours. This is not something we earn or deserve or try to get in the future. It is something that's already given to us. And he's given to us, um, has given to us all things that pertain to our life, that is our physical life and our spiritual life. Through the knowledge of him, that puts the focus on his word. It's not through some mystical insight. It's not through some sort of, of experience. It's not through some sort of, of uh, focus on uh, entering into some special kind of relationship, having a second act of grace, or any of these other things that have come in either outside of the church or inside the church. It is the Word of God, the Word of God, the Word of God. And it is through that knowledge that we are able to then apply the truth in our lives and in our thinking. 
So we're looking at these biblical examples, and our, we're just going to look at two in the New Testament. First is Paul, and then the Lord Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, what a fantastic individual. When you think about his background, you think about his conversion, and then you think about his years as an apostle, he put up with all kinds of opposition. Oppositions that would, I'm afraid, cause all but a minor, minor group of believers to fall away very rapidly, especially today. We really have a generation of snowflake Christians who just don't know how to be tough with the word and tough in their spiritual life. They don't have spiritual, mental attitude, toughness. And that is what we see in the Apostle Paul. And we see just a tremendous example in 2 Corinthians. Now, in 2 Corinthians, Paul is having to deal with some opponents, some who have lied about him, some who have ridiculed him, some who've claimed he's not really an apostle because he wasn't one of the uh, original apostles. And so they are touting and boasting about their own uh, abilities, the things that they have done for Jesus, the things that have happened through them in their ministries. And so they're boasting about their uh, their backgrounds, their pedigrees, as it were, the list of spiritual accomplishments. And this is not something that the Apostle Paul does. He doesn't emphasize that. In fact, we read of a number of things that happened to Paul in this chapter that we, don't, we can't categorize where they were. We can't put them on a chronological timeline because they're not mentioned anywhere else. When you read through these passages in 2 Corinthians 4, they're generally mentioned, but in 2 Corinthians 11, there's more specificity. Paul is doing this only because he's sort of been backed into a corner, but the way he is doing it has been, has been changed. He's not just saying, okay, they're going to boast about what they've got, I'm going to boast about what I've got, because... A, and, and what he's doing is he's showing something different. He's not showing the great things that God has done through him. He's not talking about miracles that God performed through him. He's not going to talk about the way that God protected him or delivered him from jails like in uh, Philippi. And even when he talks about these circumstances where he's beaten, where he's flogged, where he's shipwrecked, he doesn't tell how God got him out of those. The focal point of all of these examples is that he's boasting not in his accomplishments, but in his weakness. This just runs 180 degrees opposite the mentality of the Greeks. The Greeks want to focus on how great you are. We do too. We want to have our uh, I've been there walls where we have all of our plaques and all of our accomplishments and diplomas on the wall and everything that we've done. But that's not the approach of the Apostle Paul. And so they are reciting all their accomplishments, all the great things that God has done for them. And this has impressed the Corinthians. And as a result of that, they've been sucked into the false teaching of these, these 
false apostles. And so I want us to get us get a little uh, context before we get into chapter 11. So in, I mean chapter 12. So we'll go back to chapter 11 and look at verse verse 12. We go back to 11 and we go back to verse 12. We realize that Paul is responding to this pressure, but in a way that will turn the tables on his opponents. And so in verse 12, he says, but what I do, I will also continue to do that I may cut off the opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the things of which they boast. You have to follow this verbiage for boasting all the way through here to catch the main idea. They boast. They're boasting about their great accomplishments, and they're boasting about their mystical insights into spiritual things. That's what chapter 12 is really all about. And then he defines them and describes them in verse 13 as false apostles. They are claiming to be apostles. Now, in the, in the next chapter, in chapter 12, verse 12, he'll say, Truly the signs of an, of an apostle were accomplished among you with all perseverance in signs and wonders and mighty deeds. That's a sign of a true apostle. And they were engaged in counterfeit miracles, and they were teaching false doctrine. So there's these who claim to be apostles, others that were deceitful workers. They're, they're performing magic tricks. It's not the kind of miracles that Paul performed. We have the same kind of thing going on today in the church and outside of the church. You have your deceitful workers in uh, various world religions, such as Hinduism, but it's not on the order of what Christ did or the apostles did. You have your deceitful workers in the charismatic healing movements uh, that have gone on in this country since the early 20th century. And especially after World War II, there was the rise of what was known as the, the healing revivals. And a lot of the people that you have heard about here and there on um, uh, maybe on the television, watching television, evangelists, uh, people like T.D. Jakes, and uh, he's a more contemporary one, but Oral Roberts and others that came out of that healing revival uh, claimed to have done all kinds of things and all kinds of all kinds of miracles, etc., and healings and things of that nature. But uh, many of them are not on the same order. Most, all of them are not on the same order as what we have in Scripture, where we have Jesus giving life to the dead. Now there are claims that this has happened, but it's never been documented. And Jesus' claims were always easily documented when someone had, was died. There were various witnesses that they were dead or had been dead, or in the case of Lazarus, had been buried and been in the tomb for four days. And yet he walked out. So there is this, this categorical, uh, categorical difference when I've taught on healing in the past, I didn't want to go into all of that tonight, but I have a list, and you can go back and find where I taught on that, a list, and that doctrine may even be up on the website, a list of charismatic leaders 
one of whom, like Dottie Osteen here, the mother of Joel Osteen, uh, had cancer. She had cancer back in the 80s. Of course, she didn't go to Oral Roberts to get healed. She went to MD Anderson and was healed. This is kept very was kept very secret, and you can find that throughout many of these of these healing evangelists. But they also have been marked by a lot of false teaching, and so this is not something that was unique to the first century. We still have it going on today, and it has leaked out into other areas of evangelicalism, and so this is a, a major problem. Uh, these false apostles and deceitful workers transformed themselves into apostles of Christ. That's what their claim was. Nobody comes along and says, I'm, I am a disciple of the devil. Nobody comes along and says, I am a false teacher. You have to evaluate what they say, and Satan is the master counterfeiter. That's what comes out exactly in this passage. And ver the next verse where Paul says, and no wonder, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. So Satan appears to be everything that you think Jesus would be. That's what's going to deceive people in the tribulation period with the Antichrist. So Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing if his ministers, if his agents, if those who are the agents of deception in the church are also transformed themselves into ministers of righteousness. But we know it's a fake righteousness. It's just a facade. It's just a veneer of morality and spirituality. And they will transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, but their end will be according to their works. In other words, they will get... As we, my mother used to say, they're going to get their comeuppance. They're going to get what is due to them because of what they have done. And then in verse 18, he points out, he says, seeing that many boast according to the flesh. See, they're boasting about their physical accomplishments for the Lord, how wonderful God has uh, provided for them and what he has done through them. So that is the context. Now, he gets into examples in verse 19, but I want to remind you first of what he said in 2 Corinthians 4, 8. I have often thought that this passage should be this, the passage that uh, would, would provide a good text for an ordination sermon or for sending someone on the mission field. For we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. Why aren't they crushed? Sufficiency of God's grace, relying upon God's power. So the hard-pressed is just a summary of all the ways that they are opposed uh, for everything from verbal attacks, insults, all of those kinds of things that would happen all the way to physical floggings and beatings and being thrown in jail, and later they would be uh, killed. They would be executed. They would be martyred. It says, we are hard-pressed on every side, yet not crushed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. I wonder if the Lord ever appeared to Paul and said, Paul, how do you feel about that? Something God never asked. That's not the point. The point is faithfulness and service and dependence upon the Lord. 
persecuted, but not forsaken. God didn't leave him alone. God did not forsake him. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down, but not destroyed. Always caring about in the body the dying of the Lord Jesus, that the life of Jesus also may be manifested in our body. It was all about demonstrating the character of Christ, even in the worst persecution. And, of course, our Lord manifested that during his arrest and trial and beatings and everything leading up to the cross. So, going to 1118, then in verse 23, Paul continues to talk about these guys, and he says, are they ministers of Christ? And then he says, I speak of, as a fool. In other words, he's going to uh, enter into this, and he think it into this this argument that they've brought to the to the foreground, but it's foolish. He says, "I'm more in labors more abundant, in stripes above measure, in prisons more frequently, in deaths often." Now that's quite a resume right there. That he's been uh, he's labored more. That is not usually what you hear these people. Out. It's not what they boast about. They boast about great accomplishments. They think they talk about how they have um, done great things and miracles have been done through them and how expansive their ministries are and how they're spreading around the world and all the money that is coming in and all the things that they are building. Paul is not talking about that. He says, I've labored more than them. I have been whipped more than them in stripes above measure. I've been in prison more than them. Let's look at my resume. I am an ex-con. I have been in prison in numerous places. That's quite a resume. And I have been close to death many times. And then he starts listing these. He says, from the Jews, five times I received 40 stripes minus one. Now, this was the halakhic law. Halakha is the oral tradition. It's the interpretation of the Mosaic Covenant, which prohibited giving uh, more than 40 lashes. So according to halakhic law, you only gave 39 just in case you miscounted. That way you would not be guilty of going beyond 40. So he says, from the Jews five times, his back must have been a maze of scars and welts. That whipping would have ripped the skin, shredded the muscles on his back. And that had happened five different times. And he didn't give up and say, well, things didn't go well quite like I wanted, so maybe that's not God's will for me. That's how a lot of modern Christians are. Things don't quite appear to be good because they think if it's God's will, it's going to be pleasant, it's going to be prosperous, and it may not be. God's will, I met a man, I had known his daughter because she was friends with some uh, of my roommates when I first went to seminary. I had uh, two roommates who went to Dallas Bible College, and I was starting at Dallas Seminary. And I had met this gal because she worked in the library over at Dallas Bible College. 
she was part Indian, part American. Her father was a missionary from and graduated from Dallas Seminary. And I met him a couple of years later in a summer school course where we were we were studying cross-cultural ministry. And he was there as a, as a student just taking some uh, continuing education courses. And I met him. He's a very quiet man. He you know, I was 26 or 27, and at that time he was probably in his 50s. And I talked to someone, and they said, oh, is so-and-so in your class? And I said, yes. He said, that guy is remarkable. He lives in a one-room hut in one of the most impoverished areas in India. And it was 20 years before he saw his first convert. That is the glory of the mission field. I had a classmate of mine. His name was uh, it was Orville, I believe. I can't remember his last name now. And he spent about 15 years living with his wife and children in the city of the dead in Cairo, which is a, one of the most impoverished areas in the entire world. And it's a Muslim community, and every morning when he would get up, he would leave his passport with his wife so she would have that to take to the authorities if he didn't show up in the evening. And their offices were hidden and were uh, relatively anonymous in Cairo. He would go there and meet with his team, and they would go out, and they would just spend time developing relationships. And I think he had led two people to the Lord in 15 years. When his kids got into high school, they decided to come back for their education in the States, and I, don't, I lost contact with him. I don't know if he ever went back. But I often think, now, those people are the real missionaries. But that's because we have a fake value. Real missionaries are each one of us, and God has us in different places. Some people he has in a very difficult circumstance, others not so difficult. I often thought that it would be nice if I was a missionary to Fifth Avenue, but that didn't work out either. So, I'm just joking, being facetious. Three times, Paul says, I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. We only know of one of them. And then he says, a night and a day I have been in the deep. So in one of those shipwrecks, he was basically stranded and holding on to some portion of the shipwreck and just left floating out there waiting for somebody to come along and to rescue him. And then in verse 26, he says, in journeys often, he's always traveling. It's a good thing that he wasn't married because his wife would have wanted him at home and she may not have wanted to put up with all of his travels. This was not a time when you had five-star hotels. You didn't even have a Holiday Inn with just a black and white. All you had was, was campsite on the ground until you got to the next town. In perils of waters, floods, in perils of wa robbers, it was dangerous on the highways. You could be attacked, and that's why people traveled in groups. In perils of my own countrymen, he had uh, fellow Jews that would seek his life. In perils of the Gentiles, there were Gentiles who sought his life. In perils in the city, with all the problems you would, might have in the city or in the wilderness, 
and perils in the sea and perils among false brethren. If you can't find safety in the city, in the wilderness, or on the sea, you can't find safety anywhere. Verse 27, in weariness and toil, in sleeplessness often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often. Now, that's not fasting for a spiritual reason. That's just going hungry without food because you don't have anything. That's why Paul says, I have learned to abound, and I have learned to do without. I can do all things in Christ who strengthens me. In weariness and toil and sleeplessness often, hunger and thirst and fastings often, in cold and nakedness, just not having the right clothes for the weather. Then besides the other things, what comes upon me daily, my deep concern for all the churches. And so he says in verse 30, if I must boast, I will boast in the things which concern my infirmity. I'm going to boast in my weakness. That's his whole theme here, that, that in our weakness, God's power is made available and made evident. So he's not boasting in great accomplishments. He's bo- boasting in his weakness and the things that the world looks on as that which discredits you and that which is, you would not want to put on your, on your resume. And then we come to verse 1 of chapter 12. See, the chapter break breaks up the flow a little bit. You think it's a different topic, but it, in one sense it is. But it's continuing this issue of boasting. They're boasting and bragging, the false apostles and false teaching, bragging about everything that God does through them. They have the great resume. They look great. They have great rhetorical skills. In the eyes of the world, they are much more successful than this little curmudgeon, curmudgeonly Jew who's trotting along from village to village without a whole lot to his name. It is doubtless not profitable for me to boast. I will come to visions and revelations of the Lord. So they not only boasted in what they had done, they boasted in the fact that they had these mystical insights, these great insights into the Scripture. So that's tied to verse 30. So then he says, I know a man. Now he's talking in the third person. It becomes clear when you get down to verse 7 when he shifts to the first person that he's talking about himself in these first six verses. I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago, whether in the body I do not know or whether out of the body I do not know. I've heard a lot of people who try to figure this out. Paul said he didn't know, and if he didn't know, nobody knows other than God. So he didn't know whether he had a just a vision or whether he was uh, bodily caught up into heaven. But it would seem that he's caught up to the third heaven because the verb there is harpazo. That is the verb that is translated by the Latin word rapio in First Thessalonians chapter 4 and that is the the rapture verse. And so this is the word, to be snatched away. In fact, that's used in the parables of the soil when Jesus said that the seed falls on the soil and the birds came and snatched it away. That's harpazo. So he, he, he doesn't know from his own experience, but he's caught up to the third heaven. And the, the Bible looks at the earth as the first heaven, the atmosphere around the earth is the first heaven. The second heaven is the universe, the solar system, the galaxies, all of the universe is a second heaven. And the third heaven 
is the throne of God. So he's caught up to the third heaven. He's in the presence of God. Now, this is a little timeline. I meant to deanimate this, so I'll just hit the buttons real fast. This shows the different raptures in the Bible. There are these different raptures. The first one is the rapture of Enoch in Genesis 5.24, when the text says, Enoch walked with God, and he was not, for God took him. He just walked right into eternity from this mortal earth. And then the second example is Elijah, when God sent a fiery chariot to pick up Elijah and to take him to heaven via that chariot in 2 Kings 2.11. In the Greek text, twice we have a reference to Jesus. In Acts 1.11, he ascends to heaven. That is a type of the rapture. And Revelation 12.5, where the child is harpazoed to heaven. Then we have a localized harpazo of Philip. When Philip is uh, taken and uh, taken by the Holy Spirit to the Ethiopian eunuch to witness to him. He has been up in the area uh, near Caesarea, and then all of a sudden the Holy Spirit just snatched him up and took him to um, took took him down to where the Ethiopian eunuch was, further south. Paul uses the verb twice here in Second Corinthians twelve in verse two and verse four, where he is caught up to be uh, in the third heaven. It's used of the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4.17, and then it is used of the two witnesses at the midpoint of the tribulation where they are taken into heaven. So this, these are the seven different raptures of the Bible. Now, Paul goes on to say, I know such a man, so he's still talking to the third person, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know. God knows. How he was caught up, that's Harpazo again, into paradise. Now, when Jesus ascended to heaven, uh, or after he died and the resurrection, somewhere in that period, he went to Sheol to announce, this is what we studied in First Peter, that he, to announce victory over, the, over Satan and the demons, that victorious proclamation. At the same time, he took paradise, which is the, the section of Sheol where Old Testament saints went before the cross. And then he took paradise to heaven. And so Old Testament saints are now in heaven. Once he completed the work on the cross, then he took the Old Testament saints to heaven. So he's Uh, caught up to the third, uh, I mean, the paradise is then taken to heaven. And so he's caught up into paradise, paradise is now in heaven, and heard inexpressible words, which it is not lawful for a man to utter. Reminds me of Daniel sealing up part of what he saw and not be given permission to reveal it. And then he says, of such a one I will boast, Yet of myself I will not boast except in my infirmity. So he's keeping this theme going. It's not about how great I am. It's how weak I am. For though I might desire to boast, I will not be a fool. Only a fool boasts. 
For I will speak the truth, but I refrain lest anyone should think of me above what he sees me to be or hears from me. This is true humility, grace orientation. He's not boasting in anything because it's all God's power. And then in verse 7 he says, Unless I should be exalted above measure by the abundance of the revelation. So here in verse 7 is when we see him shift to a first person that he realize he's the one who had been taken to the third heaven where he was given these uh, disclosures from God, these special revelations. And connected to that is the fact that this is now, he's given a thorn in the flesh. Now, there are a lot of people who come up with lots of ideas about what Paul's thorn in the flesh was. Some people think it was a physical malady, that he had poor eyesight. They cite some passages from Galatians, that he had other health problems, and there's a whole list of different speculations as to what those health problems were. But I think my view is that the text tells us what these special problems are when it gets down into verse verses 9 and 10. He's given a thorn in the flesh, and this thorn in the flesh is energized by a demon because he says it's a messenger, an angelos. Now, you see that I spell that A-G-G. In the Greek, when you have a double G, it's pronounced like an N-G in English. It's angelos. So he is, this is an angelos, an angel of Satan. So those are the fallen angels. Those are the demons. A, an angel, a fallen angel of Satan to buffet me, lest I be exalted above measure. In other words, I've been given this, this demon is given permission to... Uh, give me opposition in order to keep me humble, in order to keep me from bragging about myself and thinking that I'm too great. So three specific times he's facing this, and he pleaded with the Lord that this would be taken from him. Now, I've heard some that have said that Paul was wrong to pray for this. Well, why would Paul be wrong to pray that the Lord would remove this? Because until Paul prayed and God said no, Paul didn't know what the purpose was. So when we face problems and challenges in life, there's nothing wrong with asking the Lord to remove it whatsoever. That's not a lack of faith, but we recognize that God will allow it for a purpose seems to me that somebody who didn't have a sin nature once prayed that the Lord would remove this from him in the Garden of Gethsemane. And the Lord had the same answer to Jesus Christ that he had for Paul, and that is, nope, you can make it. And so that's exactly how the Lord answers this. He says, my grace is sufficient for you. I will sustain you. I will provide for you for my strength. Strength is his power, is God's omnipotence. My omnipotence is made perfect. It's made complete in weakness. So this whole section from where I started back in chapter 11 is all about Paul demonstrating it's not about him, it's about God. It's about his weaknesses and inabilities and the way God used him, showing that God got all the credit and not Paul. 
So he says, Therefore, most gladly, I will rather boast in my infirmities, not in my accomplishments, that the power of Christ, there's that word again, that the power of Christ may rest upon me. And then it's interesting, verse 10, he says, Therefore, I take pleasure in infirmities, in reproaches, in needs, in persecutions, in distresses for Christ's sake. For when I am weak, then I am strong. Here is a man who had probably one of the greatest minds in all of the ancient world, if not all of history. He had one of the greatest educations in his rabbinical training. He had one of the greatest insights into God's plan that was given to him through these revelations that no one else, none of the other apostles had. He was the, one of, he was the greatest of the apostles. And yet, he was rejected over and over again. It's so frustrating. You've experienced this with your, some of your families and other people that you know and care about, that when you're trying to explain to them what's really happening in our country, you try to explain to them the gospel, and they reject you. They think you're a fool. They're in complete opposition to you. And you know the truth. Can you imagine if you were the Apostle Paul with all of his knowledge and all of his genius and all the things that he had done and accomplished, and these people are running him out of town, they're persecuting him, they're rejecting him, they're ridiculing him, and he knows the truth better than anybody on the earth, and yet they reject him. He's going through rejection, he's going through resentment and hostility and bitterness, people making up stories about him, people uh, being false witnesses, getting him arrested and thrown into jail, and even worse, being beaten and being flogged and all of these things. That's what kept him humble, is he was not building mega churches. He was building solid churches. And the Lord was working through him, and he wasn't in any way responsible for the, for the fruit of his ministry. God was. Therefore, he took pleasure in these things. So I think the thorn in the flesh is a broad concept. It's all of the opposition, rejection, resentment, everything that Paul faced in his life that the Lord used to keep him from becoming arrogant, and it kept him humble. That's our first example. The second example has a lot of, lot of similarities, and that's the example that we have in, in the Lord Jesus Christ. You just think about, we're talking about Paul in terms of his rejection, the resentment, the um, bogus charges, the false witnesses, everything brought against him, and the same thing, of course, had already happened to the Lord Jesus Christ. One problem that a lot of people have in life is rejection. There are two kinds of rejection. There's real rejection, and there is imagined rejection. There's all kinds of rejection. It happens in, in relationships of all kinds. It happens in business relationships. If you're in sales, you, you've experienced it day in and day out. Everybody, time anybody says they don't want to buy your product, whatever it is, you have all kinds of rejection. We have reject, rejection in marriages. We have rejection in 
other uh, romantic relationships. You have rejection in trying to find a job. Um, we're going to have a special speaker when I'm on vacation in November, Doug Petrovich. Dr. Petrovich is a world-class scholar. He's written a book on the world's oldest alphabet, which he believes to be Hebrew. He, um, <clears throat> he was... Um, Featured in the film that you went to see, some of you went to see back in in March about the mosaic authorship of the Pentateuch. He was, Randy Price was heavily featured at the beginning, and then uh, Doug, Dr. Petrovich, was heavily featured later on. He's a world-class um, archaeologist. He had applied at like 150 seminaries before he got accepted to a seminary that you and I never heard of before in Katy called the Biblical Seminary. He's teaching down there, and he teaches a lot of Old Testament courses. Well, during the last summer, he spent about three weeks in Shiloh on a dig. He's written a paper on another uh, aspect of David fighting Goliath and just where the uh, Israelite armies were located uh, in, that, uh, in that battle things of that nature, and so he's going to come and he will be teaching on uh, those two weeks, four Bible classes, Tuesday, Thursday, Tuesday, and Thursday. And so I'm hoping that everybody will make it a point to be here because it's really uh, better if you show up as a guest speaker and there's more than five people showing up. And so he is a great speaker. Uh, just a warning with any guest speakers we have that don't come from our general background is they may say, I don't know that he will, but he may say a thing or two and you raise your eyebrow and that's okay. Uh, we've had some interesting conversations and um, uh, that's all I'm going to say about that. Not in even in terms of theology, but just some archaeological interpretive things that I've heard different views from what he has and he's within a very solid, uh, solid conservative uh, camp. There's nothing that I've seen in him that's not. So I think you will learn a lot. I've learned a lot just talking to him about a number of different things. But you know what it's like to apply for 150 jobs and just say no, 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 no. Rejection is a major problem that people face, and yet the examples we have in Scripture again and again are of the uh, these great spiritual heroes who are rejected time and time and time again. So the Lord is rejected. Isaiah 53, 3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised, and we did not esteem him. This is the prophecy from Isaiah 53, 3. John chapter 1 says, He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. So he makes the world, he creates the human race, and they don't know him. They reject him. And then he came to his own, that is the Jewish people, and his own did not receive him. So he's ridiculed by the Jews. He's harangued. They had, were already gossiping about this virgin birth thing that possibly his mother had had an affair with somebody or maybe with uh, Joseph and they had had premarital sex or whatever, but... Uh, he's also accused of casting out demons by the power of Satan. He's accused of doing his miracles by the power of Satan. And yet Jesus never lashed out. Jesus never 
uh, retorted in anger. He never did any of the things that you and I might be tempted to do. Uh, he had very sophisticated ways of responding to attacks. He would usually ask questions. And those questions would cause people to get even more irritated and angry with him. But he was plotted against, conspired against, and eventually they crucified him. So if you want to be Christ-like, that's the end result. But what we see here is that in his temptations, especially the three testings that mark the beginning of his ministry in Matthew chapter 4, is that he goes to the Word each time. He is tempted, he quotes scripture in response. He recognizes that it because scripture is true, the power is in the truth. That's why later he will tell the uh, Pharisees in John 8, the truth will set you free. It is, it's powerful because it's the truth, not because it has some sort of superstitious, mystical, magical, inherent uh, sort of power in it. And so Psalm 119.11 Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against you. What's the solution to sin? It's not finding some little secret prayer phrase. It's not uh, learning how to say certain things like a mantra over and over again. It is to memorize scripture and to use the scripture in those kinds of situations. So we see the temptation in Matthew chapter 4 verse 1. And we see that he is led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tested by the devil. External temptation. He cannot be internally drawn or attracted to, to the sin. So the devil, ta- I mean the Holy Spirit takes him to just a wonderful, beautiful place. It's a great contrast with the beautiful place where Adam and Eve were tested. They're tested in a Garden of Eden that is lush and it's filled with all manner of trees that produce fruit that is good to eat. Everything is, is perfect and wonderful. There's four rivers that flow out of Eden. And so Satan goes after the Lord in one of the great desert areas of the world. And this is in the desert down near the River Jordan. So we have Jerusalem is located down right here on just to the lower left of the circle. That circle kind of moved. Let me, uh, no, yeah, that's close enough. The circle here is circling the area of the wilderness where the temptation took place. Down here is Jericho. This is the crossing of the Jordan at the time. So down here in the south is the Dead Sea Up to the north is the Sea of Galilee. So this is the area where the Lord goes. Today, if you go there in Jericho, there is the Temptation Restaurant and Ice Cream Bar, my particular temptation. So that's what we find today. And if you're, that's looking at the, at the gift shop and coffee shop and ice cream bar. But if you turn around and look in the opposite direction, this is what you see. These are these arid, there's nothing there, there's no water there, they're they're arid, they're barren, and for 40 days and 40 nights, the Lord Jesus Christ is fasting, 
And God is sustaining him during that time. That is not unusual. It's not impossible for a human body to go that long without food. But by the end of 40 days, that hunger returns and you begin to desire food again. And so in this state of physical weakness, again, in the Garden of Eden, you had Adam and Eve in a place of strength. They were in a wonderful location. They had everything they needed around them. They were not physically weakened. They were not, uh, they, they were fed, well fed. They had plenty to drink. And here's the Lord. He's weak after 40 days, and he's going to be tested by the devil. So he is testing the uh, sincerity or genuineness of something. He's being tested to see if he is qualified to go to the cross and to be, if he's qualified as the Messiah. So verse 2 reminds us he had fasted for 40 days and 40 nights, and afterward he's hungry. If you haven't eaten for 40 days and 40 nights, most of that time you're not hungry. The first day or two you will get hungry at times. You just drink water. I've gone through this for about a three- to four-day fast. Then your appetite goes away. But as soon as you start eating again, it comes back with a vengeance. I did this at the end of a two-week Christian outward bound kind of thing, a wilderness leadership training that um, Wheaton's Honey Rock Camp put on back in my days when I worked with Christian camping and backpacking ministries and things of that nature. And the last four days, we had a fast on the beach at Lake Superior. So the lake water in Lake Superior is completely potable because the average temperature is just about one degree above freezing, and bacteria can't live in that. So you have all the water you want to drink, but you're really warned not to take any food with you because there are a lot of bears, and the bears can sniff out the food. And there was an incident with somebody in another group not far from us that had their that that they were out, and their backpack was attacked and shredded by a bear trying to get to. Uh, to some food in there. So uh, we did our four-day fast. We came out and we went back. And when we got to the to a restaurant where we could eat, I don't think I've ever eaten that much as I've eaten in that first 24-hour period in my life. So it comes back with a vengeance. And, and once you take your first bite, you just can't say, oh, no, no, I'm not going to have any more. It just, you, your, your body's just sort of reaction just sort of take over. So the Lord has been fasting. This is uh, Psalm thirty-five, thirteen says, but is a messianic psalm. But as for me, when they were sick, my clothing was sackcloth. I humbled myself with fasting. That's what the whole purpose of fasting is to humble yourself under the mighty hand of God, and He will sustain you. Prayer also. So the tempter, that is, the devil comes says to him, if you are the Son of God, it's a first-class condition in the Greek, which doesn't always mean since, but here you'll get a good, uh, a good meaning for that. Since you are the Son of God, he's admitting here that Jesus is the Son of God. Well, just prior to this, John the Baptist had baptized him, and the Father announced, this is my Son in whom I'm well pleased. So Satan comes along and says, if, and he means if, and uh, you are the Son of God, So I know you can do this. You created the heavens and the earth and all that is in them, so you can turn the stones into bread. You can change their molecular structure 
from rock to flour and water and bread and bake it all in a nanosecond. So you command that these stones become bread. So this is the first temptation, and it is a temptation that appeals to Jesus' physical nature as a man. Can he withstand this and satisfy his physical needs apart from God's plan? See, Jesus as God wouldn't go through this because as God, he's not going to get hungry. As God, he's not going to experience these needs. So this is a test for his humanity. That's one of the reasons that when the passage begins, it identifies him as Jesus and not the Messiah, not the Son of God, not the Son of Man, but as Jesus is emphasizing his humanity. And so this is a test for his humanity because in hypostatic union, he had to solve his human problems without depending on his divine attributes. Now, he did use his divine attributes many times when he stilled the storms, when he walked on the water, when he changed the water into wine, but it was necessary because as the Messiah, he was also demonstrating he was God. But he never used his divine attributes to sustain him in the testing that was related to his is human nature. So <clears throat> Satan says that tempts him to change the stones into bread, and Jesus answers by quoting scripture and says, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. This is a direct quote from Deuteronomy 8 3. Jesus is countering the temptation, he's countering the testing by quoting scripture. It's not just a recitation of doctrine, that may be all you have though, but it is a reminder of what the text says. So Jesus recognizes that his hunger is a legitimate need, but there is only one right way to satisfy that, and it's not by using his divine power. We always have three options. The first is that a, a, a wrong thing done in a wrong way is wrong. A wrong thing done in a right way is wrong. It has to be a right thing done in a right way. The second is what confuses a lot of people. They want to do the right thing, but it's the end justifies the means, so they do it a wrong way. And that's the trouble with a lot of churches is they try to face problems and challenges and difficulties, whatever, the wrong way. They go to sociology and psychiatry to get the answers rather than doing it the right way. So they have a bad methodology. Methodology can be just as fleshly and carnal as doing something that's sinful. It's a right thing, but it's doing it in a fleshly way. So man, so he says, quoting, quoting from Deuteronomy 8.3, and the context of Deuteronomy 8.3 is referring to God feeding the Israelites in the wilderness. And Moses is reminding them that when they got in the wilderness, that they were hungry, they wanted to go back to Egypt, back to slavery, back to the leeks and garlics of Egypt, and God humbled them. He taught them humility. And he said, he, and then he says, God allowed you to hunger. God's permissive will allows us to go through trials and testing and difficulties because he's trying to teach us to depend on him. 
So he allowed the Israelites to hunger so that he could show that he could sustain them in the wilderness by bringing food to them, and he fed them with manna. Manna is a Hebrew word, ma-na. Ma means what. Na means what it. So it really means what it is. And they got up in the morning, and they saw everything covered with what looked like a heavy white dew, and they just looked and said, what is it? What it is, man, what it is. So that's what manna is. And he said, Jesus, I mean, Moses said, he fed you with manna, which you did not know, nor did your fathers know, that he might make you know that man shall not live by bread alone. It's not just physical sustenance. You have to have that spiritual sustenance and learn to walk in dependence with the Lord. And then Moses says, but man lives by every word that proceeds from the mouth of the Lord. That's where life is, is in the word of God, not in feeding our stomachs. Paul talks about this same principle, which we just studied earlier in 2 Corinthians 12, 9 and 10, that God says, my grace is sufficient for you. May not provide the way you want, but he will provide the necessities. So we have the second temptation, which is a political temptation. In Matthew 4, 5, then the, level, the devil took him up into the holy city and set him on a pinnacle in the temple. The reference here to holy city is specifically emphasizing the role of Jerusalem in God's plan for history and to bring a kingdom to Israel. In Ezekiel, it talks about Jerusalem is the center of the world. The center of Jerusalem was the temple, and Satan takes Jesus to the highest point on the temple, which was 450 feet above the Kidron Valley. You don't quite see it that way today because the wall that is around uh, Jerusalem was a wall that was built by Suleiman the Magnificent, and that is roughly on the same in the same area, follow the same track as the Herodian wall, but the topography is different. So I'll show you a couple of pictures in just a minute, but it's extremely a high point and 450 feet above the valley. And he says, if you are the son of God, again, second, I mean, first class condition, if or since you are the son of God, throw yourself down. And then he quotes scripture. See, Satan catches on real quick. If Jesus is going to counter with scripture, now I, he's going to use scripture but he misquotes and misapplies the text. Now, what's going on here is that there was a rabbinical tradition that in the hour that the Messiah comes, he stands on the roof of the sanctuary. So he is tempting Jesus to make this extraordinary display of himself on the highest point of the temple in order to make his political claim to be uh, to be the Messiah. And if, of course, if Jesus threw himself off, he would he would land uh, and and he would certainly die. So uh, this was a sign that the rabbis were looking for. In John chapter six, verse thirty, we're told, Therefore they said to him, that is the Pharisees, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? So this is their tradition. The Messiah is going to show up on the 
on the roof of the temple. So Satan is going to misapply the scripture. It's the quote that he's using comes out of Psalm 91, 9 through 13. Now I have underlined what he quotes. In Psalm 91, 11, for he shall give his angels charge over you. Then he skips the next phrase. And then in 91, 12, he says, in their hands they shall bear you up lest you dash your foot against a stone. As if by quoting this out of context that every believer has sort of a carte blanche to do whatever they think they'll do and God's always going to protect them from their foolishness. Look at verse 9 at the top. Because you have made the Lord who is my refuge, even the most high, your dwelling place. So this is talking about the believer who has made the Lord his refuge. The believer who has made his Lord his refuge does not test the Lord. The believer who has made his Lord, the Lord his refuge does not do foolish things, like throwing himself off of a cliff to see if God is going to uh, protect him. And so it's a false application, and it is, uh, uh, it's a form of testing the Lord. In Josephus, he says that the valley was very deep and its bottom couldn't be seen. If you looked from above into the depth, this further vastly high elevation of the cloister stood upon that height, insomuch that if anyone looked down from the top of the battlements or down both those heights, he would be giddy while his sight could not reach to such an immense depth. So these are some, this is the modern wall, a picture taken from the base. This is what it, uh, the model there in the, um, at the Israel Museum. This is the pinnacle. It was, you'd, he would have taken Jesus to this rooftop here over Solomon's portico, and looking down to the bottom, that would have been the 450 feet. So Jesus' response is again to quote scripture from Deuteronomy 6, 16. You shall not tempt or test the Lord your God. And so this is where Satan is violating the whole thing. He's abusing scripture, quoting it out of context, leaving out phrases. And the phrase that he leaves out is the phrase, to keep you in all your ways. Well, that all your ways is defined by the person who is in the dwelling place, the refuge of the Lord. It's not just anything that you want to do. So by uh, keeping that phrase out, he changes the focus of the passage. Then in Matthew 4, 8, we see the kingdom test. Jesus never disputes whether Satan has the right to give him the kingdom because he became the ruler of the earth when Adam fell. He is the prince of the power of the air. And so uh, he takes Jesus to an exceedingly high mountain, shows him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory as that passes by in front of him. And then he says to Jesus, all these things I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. It is the temptation of the kingdom without the cross, the crown without the cross, that I will give you the kingdoms and you will not have to go through all of the, all of the suffering. And so Jesus uh, doesn't refute his right to offer those things because according to 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he is the God of this age 
And in Ephesians 2.2, which we'll study on Sunday morning, he's the prince of the power of the air. So Jesus responds again by quoting from Scripture, from Deuteronomy. Uh, He says, Away with you, Satan, for it is written, You shall worship the Lord your God, and him only you shall serve, which comes out of Deuteronomy Deuteronomy 6.13. So Jesus then passes the test. And because he passes the test, he is then going to be ministered to by the angels. He will be uh, fed and provided for and taken care of. So each of these had different messianic implications, and the whole idea was that he would get the messianic kingdom without having to go to the cross. He passed the test by not by miracles, but by depending on on the scripture. He hid the word of God in his heart, just as David had. He knew the word and he used the word, and that's his pattern for us. It's not some sort of extra power in a mystical way that God gave him. He is sustained by the truth of God's word. That's the principle we're seeing in 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 3 through 5, and we'll get back into that passage next week. Father, thank you for this time, this opportunity to study, to be reminded of your faithfulness, your power that you've made available to us, that it comes through your word, the knowledge of your word, the knowledge of your precious and magnificent promises, claiming those promises when we encounter testing, temptation, uh, difficulties, challenges. It is your word that strengthens and empowers us through God the Holy Spirit. Pray that we would be strengthened to not rely upon the human viewpoint, systems and gimmicks that that surround us, but radically trusting in you. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.